This episode contains accounts of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, eating disorders, and racism. You'll also hear some swearing. Previously on American Prodigies. I came to see Simone Biles. Definitely Simone Biles because she's an amazing gymnast and she's shown people that black gymnasts can be great. Being a black gymnast in a white gymnast world was one of the hardest and toughest things that I've ever had to accomplish. And I found different versions of myself that I wish I found before. And the version I am today is somebody that can speak up, that can defend themselves. It's inevitable. We damn good, so move over. Go sit down and enjoy the show and embrace us. Fourteen-year-old Diane Durham electrifying the audience here in Chicago. You're listening to tape from the 1983 National Gymnastics Championships. The championships happened in Chicago, just 30 miles from Diane Durham's hometown. That championship brought me back to my gymnastics roots because this is really where it all started. That's Diane in 2017, reminiscing about one of the biggest moments of her career. The 1983 Nationals were huge for her. If she won, she'd be the first black girl to win an all-around national championship in artistic gymnastics, the absolute best in the country. Diane Durham, 14 years old, one routine away from capturing a national championship. And her coach, the audience, and the CBS commentators also had their minds on the future and what else Diane might achieve. As you watch the performance of Diane Durham, keep in mind, we are one year away from the Olympic Games and not in the last 50 years has an American female gymnast won a medal of any kind in the Olympics. Three years earlier, Lucy Collins was the first black woman to make the women's Olympic gymnastics team. But the U.S. boycotted those games and she couldn't compete. So it fell to Diane to pick up the mantle. And by the time Diane got to the floor at Nationals, her final event on the second night, the competition was in the bag. It wasn't a question of whether she would win. It was how much she'd win by. Oh, Lord, let's get it, get it. (laughs) Angie Dankins, who would become the 1986 balance beam champion, was competing as a junior in 1983. I asked her to rewatch Diane's floor routine with me. That's my girl. Diane only needs an 865 to be the first black to come away with an all-around national championship. She about to tear it up, honey. Very difficult opening tumbling run, full twisting double back. Yeah, it's a full twisting double back and it was just perfection. See how her legs are tight. Everything is nice. Excellent. That's my girl. Wendy Hilliard, the first Black woman to compete for the United States in rhythmic gymnastics, she was in Chicago that night, too. I was like, oh, my God, this girl's about to win nationals. I was like, I called my mother. I was like, Ma, you have to, you have to drive down here tomorrow to see this Diane Durham. Here's the thing about gymnastics meets. They are painfully long. So even though Wendy's mother was living in Detroit when she got the call. My mother sure to get in the car and drive four and a half hours just to witness Diane win. 
right? Which was totally amazing. 965, that makes it official, Peter Corman. She is our new national champion. And to me, it showcased to the entire country that a little black girl from Gary, Indiana could be the best gymnast in the country. It is Diane Durham Day here at the Pavilion in Chicago. In the 80s, Black gymnasts like Joyce Wilborn talked about Diane the way up-and-coming gymnasts talk about Simone Biles today. Watching Diane Durham, I was excited. You know, that was my thing. I'm going to be just like her. I'm going to be as good as her. As most of you know, things didn't end up the way I wanted them to. Diane wouldn't make it to the 1984 Olympics. Injury, controversy coaches' egos, and systemic racism kept Diane Durham out. We'll get into that. Her training partner and fiercest competitor, Mary Lou Retton, would go on to the games instead. Retton became the first American woman to win a gold medal in the all-around competition. She broke that 50-year medal drought, and it was her name that became synonymous with gymnastics in this country for years. Diane faded quickly from the national conversation and retired from competition in 1985. In 2021, Diane Durham passed away. Hundreds of people gathered at Westside Leadership Academy, a high school across the street from her childhood home in Gary, to celebrate her life. Good evening, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Alice. I'm Diane's big sister. Family, friends, teammates told stories about Diane for hours. My sister was a trailblazer, a racial barrier breaker, as she vaulted and flew through the air with the greatest of ease. She was a ball of energy and a force to be reckoned with. But to me, she was my little sister. Other elite Black prodigies sent their respects, like Betty Okino, who won a bronze medal in Barcelona in 92. She was one of a kind and opened the door for so many young brown-skinned girls. Hi guys, it's Gabby Douglas here. Diane was a trailblazer and honoring her accomplishments has been long overdue. She paved the way for all of us to follow and the grace and power that she displayed while faced with unfairness and opposition was truly admirable. It's Simone Biles. I just wanted to send a message saying how impressed and inspired I was by Diane. Diane really paved the way for Black gymnasts like me. It's clear that Diane was never forgotten by those who gathered to lift up her memory and celebrate her life. And yet, the U.S. Gymnastics Federation, the institution she labored for, opened doors to, and transformed, it all but ignored her. Only in death did they come with flowers and platitudes and headlines and even a Hall of Fame induction. I think I always thought that Diane's gymnastics spoke for itself. She won as a junior. She won USA Championships as a senior. In the Hall of Fame, no brainer, of course. She just knew that they would never do that. I mean, she said that for years. People will be like, you know, Diane, I thought you won the Hall of Fame. And you know, say, no, I'm not. They'll never put me in when I'm alive. It's an all-too-familiar tale for trailblazing Black women athletes. And here's the thing about those flowers that only come after death. They rewrite history. 
masking the struggle and the tension between institutions and athletes they dispose of. I'm Amira Rose Davis. On this episode of American Prodigies, the story of Diane Durham and the rise of modern American gymnastics. We'll show you Diane's life and the flowers that other people gave her along the way because she had an impact that can't be measured in institutional acknowledgements, by Hall of Fame invitations or appearances on Wheaties boxes. You'll hear from Diane's contemporaries, Angie Dinkins, Joyce Wilborn, and Wendy Hilliard, about the struggles and joys of being a Black gymnast in the 1980s. Because Black girls have always been there, even when they're left out of the stories we tell about this foundational history. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey, everyone. We're giving away three custom American Prodigy windbreakers. To enter, click the link in the episode description and sign up for the Blue Wire newsletter. The newsletter gives you a sneak peek at content, merch giveaways, and opportunities to win cold, hard cash. The American Prodigy giveaway closes April 2nd and will announce the winners on April 11th. First, let's take it all the way back. When you ask the gymnast how they got into gymnastics, chances are you'll get some variation on this answer. I feel like I tumbled out of my mom's womb into the world and I was like, here I am. <laughs> I just had too much energy around the house, you know, like bouncing off the walls, flipping off the sofas. My dad one day was just like, I can't control her anymore. Like this is getting too out of hand. We need to do something about it. So they were like, maybe we should put her in gymnastics classes. Diane Durham's uncle, Alex Carter, tells a similar story. She would be at our house sometime. My father would be watching television. And when he's watching TV, you don't talk, you don't joke, you don't move, you don't do anything. And while my father's watching his favorite wrestling, she comes out and turns a flip right in front of the television. <laughs> he said, twist, if you don't sit down, you don't. I think that was the beginning of her embarking on her uh, gymnastic career, because shortly after that, she was enrolled in Wanda's. <laughs> I can still hear it, her boundless energy, her flipping all over the place. That's Tammy Tomasi Wyatt. Her mother was Wanda Tomasi, Diane's first coach, dance teacher, and mentor. Diane started training with Wanda at just three years old. When Diane came into our lives in Gary at my mom's first studio, we had never seen such talent like that, such natural, awe-inspiring talent. I spent seven years with Wanda. She told my parents I had Olympic potential, and if I wanted to reach my potential, I would need to go to another gym. My mom pushed her out of the nest, knowing she would succeed, and that she did. 
1981, at just 12 years old, Diane was the U.S. Junior All-Around National Champion. Outgrowing your gym and shopping for a new coach when you live in a small town is pretty common. And it was common back in the 80s, too. But a coach encouraging her star gymnast to leave? Not so much. My next step was a big one. That's when my family and I decided that I would leave Gary and move to Houston to train with Bella. Diane didn't start the trend of moving away to train, but she was the first elite American gymnast that moved to Texas to train with the now infamous Bella Caroli. A giant in the field of women's gymnastics, Caroli, the former Romanian national coach. Of course, who defected to this country in 1981 after a row with Romanian governments who wanted to control his gymnastics school there. Caroli, who coached Nadia to a total of nine Olympic medals in 76 and 80. In the 1970s, Bella made a name for himself as the man who coached Nadia Comaneci to Olympic victories with seven perfect tens in Montreal in 1976. They both became legend. Then he was the head coach of the Romanian national team, a gruff, chaotic personality who didn't shy away from challenging the judges about the scores they gave his gymnasts. Bella didn't yet have the public reputation that would come to define his career. The bear of a man who hugged diminutive girls and cheered encouragement when the TV cameras were watching, but who many gymnasts say hit, starved, and verbally abused them behind closed doors. Bella and his wife Marta defected to the United States from Romania in 1981, the same year that Diane became junior national champion. They were accomplished and well-known, but they weren't yet respected by the American system. They'd have to prove that they could mold champions and bring medals to the United States as well. They managed to earn enough to open their own gym in Texas, and they started recruiting American prodigies of their own. Enter Diane Durham. When she got this tryout with Bella Crowley, she packed her bags as if she was moving to Houston because she had no intention of not making the team. That's how confident she was. That's journalist Alyssa Roenick. And there was a, a handful of important gymnasts and none more important than Diane Durham in helping the Carolis to gain legitimacy in the U.S. and then convince other top athletes like Mary Lou to come to their gym. Once you have a Diane Durham who's already viewed as an up-and-coming champion, then it gets easier to recruit others. That's Bonnie Ford. She and Alyssa collaborated on ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, Heavy Metals, about how the Carolis wielded their influence over American gymnastics. But as they point out, Bella Caroli's future fame hinged on Diane Durham's success. Without Diane Durham, was there a Mary Lou? It's hard, it's hard to say. Both Diane and Mary Lou Retton were known as power gymnasts. Commentators would remark on their explosiveness, the height of their jumps and leaps. They would reserve words like graceful or elegant for longer, leaner, balletic gymnasts like the Soviets. Diane was different. She defied the binary of power gymnast versus graceful gymnast. She was way, way ahead of her time. She was the total package. Because Diane had been trained in those years leading up to her going to Houston and training with the Carolis with a gymnastics coach who was a dance teacher first, she was also incredibly balletic and it was a beautiful dancer. And so she presented a floor routine 
in this, you know, in a, in a more traditional way with the power tumbling on top of it. And I don't think anyone had really seen that. But power looks different when you're a black girl. While Mary Lou Retton did power gymnastics, she was still able to be called cute. As America's sweetheart, Mary Lou was still allowed to be a girl, to have childhood conferred upon her. Diane, on the other hand, like many black girls, was aged up. Despite being a little younger than Mary Lou, Diane's gymnastics body was talked about differently. Style, music, totally different. This is an explosive gymnast. 400 horsepower vault right here. And looking very, very aggressive. <laughs> Look at those legs churn. As you can see, she is not considered a weak acrobat or tumbler. Here's Angie Dinkins again. You know, like Diane, you see how she's muscular and in immaculate shape, but it didn't fit the traditional mold. Skinny and lean. I called it hungry because they was all starving. And especially Diane, because we had muscles, they would try to blame like the, the curvature of our muscles and our strength to be looking like, you know, we had bent limbs or, or things of that nature. Honey, they were haters. But at the end of the day, they couldn't deny it because, you know, she was so strong. So was Joyce Wilborn, an up-and-comer from New Jersey. I'm a dynamic gymnast. I'm sharp. I do not do ballet and dance like that. That's not my style. It, it, it got so bad one time where I had to travel to New York every day and take ballet lessons because they were saying I wasn't soft enough. I wasn't elegant enough. I'm not, that's not who I am. Never been that. Power gymnastics with its explosive tumbling and soaring vaults is fun to watch. But if you want to win, especially on an event-like floor, you also need grace. And the definition of grace might as well be whiteness. You see that in the 80s and 90s floor choreography. You hear it in the music. I was using um, uh, Hubie, you know, from a black play. And I missed Junior Elite by two tenths. And then the next year when I changed my floor routine to Ride of the Valkyries, I made the team. Mm. So you see the difference. Why was it important for you to be able to pick the floor music that you wanted to pick? Because I knew what type of person I was and I knew what, what I wanted to do on the floor and how, you know, what type of moves I would want to do. I'm just not the ballerina type. And when you could compete on your terms, what music you like that moved you and you can move how you naturally want to move. I got tens. <laughs> During her competitive days, Diane tried to rise above the endless comparisons to Nadia and Mary Lou. She encouraged Angie to do the same. Well, it was a wonderful feeling to see a sister, a beautiful black queen on the floor at the same time. But I was just so proud to be on the floor with her and there was a young lady that looked just like me and her hair was about the same. We had the same wig do. <laughs> And I just wanted to let you all know that was not an afro. It was a jerry curl. Okay? So that's what it was. We've moved on. Yeah, we all had a curl. I just have a juicy one. I ain't believe in that juiciness. <laughs> so we just always got along. And when we were in the meets, my coach and I, we would encourage her. She would do the same on my part. We showed that love. 
unconditionally and always. And Diane was like, shit, that was my girl. That was my sister. It is so interesting to me to hear you talk, you know, so generously about Diane. And it it, it was so sincere. But it also felt so different from so many of the um, ways that I've uh, watched other gymnasts from your era think about competitors. And I was reading through one of your national teammates' retrospective book. You talking about Jennifer Say? Girl. Quick pause here. Jennifer Say was an elite gymnast, a white girl that came up with Angie at a gym called Wilmore. In her autobiography, Jennifer writes about her own fierce competitiveness and how she was specifically spurred by her desire to triumph over Angie. In her book, Jennifer calls Angie her best friend, but also seethed with jealousy any time Angie succeeded. Jennifer accused Wilmore coaches of favoritism. She referred to Angie as strong, but stupid, and compared the shape of her own butt to, and I quote directly here, Angie's horse-like hindquarters. Why are we talking about this? Because this is part of the experience of being a Black girl in this sport in the 80s and beyond. Whether you were a national champion like Diane, a balance beam champion like Angie, or an elite gymnast that never meddled. Okay, that should catch you up. Back to it. You talking about Jennifer Say? Girl. You know, she worked out with me, honey, so I grew up with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Child, guess what? That troll didn't bother me. Not one bit. Not one bit. And I just let her do her thing and, and do all her crying. I was like, I'm not here for the Hollywood. I'm here for the fun. Mm. Most of the, the gymnasts, they respected me. It was usually the coaches that were in their feelings and they wanted to have their uh, status up there and be the one that had the most um, amount of athletes at that level. So it was almost like it was a competition within the coaching staff or the coaches. They were a mess. (laughs) And they wouldn't have been able to handle me because I was not that one that you were going to, you know, pretty much try to break me and and mistreat me. They didn't want none of the smoke, honey. I'm just telling you, they didn't (laughs) want none of that smoke. Angie's talking about Bella, but also Bill and Donna Strauss of Parkettes in Allentown, PA, where Joyce Wilborn trained. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot. It was a lot. I had to sacrifice a lot because being in Olympics was my ultimate goal since I was little. That's all I lived for was I was going to be in the 88 Olympics and I worked hard. I wasn't flexible, so I had to lay on the floor with my legs open with roller skates and weights. I had to be pushed down. I had to I had to work hard. I mean, harder than these other gymnasts. And that's one of the things with, with being a black gymnast. We have to work twice as hard than everybody else to prove we belong to be there. And it shouldn't be like that. But I, I just adapted because I, I was focused on being in the Olympics regardless. So. I don't, I didn't care how, how hard it was going to be. I was going to do the work. There was also Scats Gymnastics in California, owned by Don Peters. He would be the head coach of the 84 Olympic team, the one that Diane was vying for. And he has since been banned from the sport for life after sexual assault allegations. 
These were the adults in charge of the top three gyms in the country in the 1980s. The adults that were on the competition floor with kids like Diane and Angie, and who stayed on the floor for decades after. We were actually at a training camp in Colorado Springs, and we had a national meet there. And so it was around the time when Bella and Marta were just, you know, getting on, on American soil and had the girls there. You know, you could tell when they were mistreated because they'd be crying. And they were stern with their coaching, and there's a difference between being stern and, and just damn dirty, down and dirty and mean with it. And though Bella might not have hit his American gymnast outright, he directly imported most of his other coaching techniques. Diane's husband, Tom Drahazel, remembers her telling stories about Bella's training philosophy decades later. Bella's gym um, sat like on a floodplain in Texas. So they did have a tropical storm that went through there. And so she said, you know, they were all thinking like, oh, it's going to be great. You know, there won't be practice today because there was water in the gym. And then lo and behold, Bella was like, no, we'll do practice today. We'll just do beam and bars with no dismounts. And don't forget, these are prodigies. They're kids. Diane was 14 when she was at the top of her game. She might not have pushed back against Bella for his training techniques, but kids will find a way to rebel. Once, when Tracy Talavera and Diane were representing the U.S. national team at a competition in Japan, Diane said, let's go shopping. And I thought, okay. It was right when Walkman hit Japan and they weren't in the U.S. yet. We had to go do it. Diane was in her element. They shopped for three hours. When they got back to the hotel and got in the elevator, the girls breathed a sigh of relief. They thought they'd snuck through. Elevator opens. We come out. Who do we see walking down the hall? Bella. Diane said, oh boy. Of course, oh was one of the words. Other ones started with an S, but you get it. So Bella came up to us and he said, what are you girls doing? You're gonna tire your legs out. We have workout, another competition. He yelled at us for a while. That Walkman must have been worth it because Diane convinced Tracy to sneak out again to go shopping on a trip in New York. They got away with it that time. Someone saw them coming and distracted Bella so they could slip back into their hotel rooms. She always said with him, like, he was definitely a taskmaster, but you knew what you were getting into when you went to train with him. We knew that he was Nadia Komenich's coach and he could help me get to the next level. Diane didn't train with the Carolis for very long. She was with them for less than two years leading up to her national title in 1983. Maybe that's why she eventually emerged from elite gymnastics relatively intact. On the, that fateful shopping trip in Japan, I don't recall if my legs or her legs were sore the next day. After our trip in New York, I don't recall what places Julianne, myself, and Diane got in the all-around or events, what have you. What I do recall is enjoying and experiencing life with Diane outside of gymnastics. I hope somewhere she understands how revered and respected she was by all of us. Thank you.
You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Diane Durham was fiercely loyal to her roots and proud to say that she was from Gary, Indiana. And Gary was proud of her. Because the 1983 Nationals were in Chicago, happening so close to home, hundreds of people from Gary poured into the arena. I will always remember how my family and several busloads of supporters from my church and Gary made the trip to Chicago. They waved massive banners and wore custom t-shirts. And they all had on t-shirts, which I did not know that said, I love Diane Durham. During the height of steel production in the 1920s and 30s, Gary boomed, attracting job seekers from across the globe. But in the 1970s, just after Diane was born, that boom burst. The once bustling town started to board up. And when the resources left town, so did the white people, turning Gary into a predominantly black city. But black folks in Gary did what black folks do in most places, what they lacked in resources, they made up for with resiliency, strength, and community. And that's the thing about Gary. They are going to put on for their city. Their people, like the Jackson Five or Diane Durham. I remember one time we were in the backyard playing, and I said, Diane, why your daddy got that big piece of wood over there? She said, well, that's a balance beam. We didn't have a clue. <laughs> That's Reverend Keith Curtis, who had been Diane's friend since kindergarten. Having this community to come home to after winning national and international recognition, it kept Diane humble, it kept her safe and surrounded by love. I remember one meet, after the meet, uh, Diane came over and we were laughing and stuff. Diane, why those people asking you for your autograph? You ain't nobody. We didn't know. We were her safe haven. We were that sense of normalcy for her. And it was awesome. It was something she had in common with rhythmic gymnast Wendy Hilliard. People always ask how I managed, and it was because I always came back to Detroit. I keep telling people I really think that's how I got through it. So when I left, I wasn't, even if I was only Black in training camp or internationally, I always came home to a Black city and an environment in my church and my school. Institutions that, that held space for you, even when you were in a space where that wasn't the case, you could bring it with you. Right. And it make, that makes a difference. I think it really does. One of the biggest challenges of Wendy's career also came in 1983, when she was trying to make the U.S. team for the World Championships of Rhythmic Gymnastics. 
She was at the top of her game during the training camp for team selection. Like Diane, everyone knew Wendy was good enough to be a lock for the rhythmic team. But when they bring everybody together to say, we're announcing the team going to the world championships, they read off everybody's name except mine. You know, I asked her, I just asked the head coach. I'm like, how come I'm not on? She said, oh, Vindy, you just stand out too much. I was like, I was like, really? But, you know, I'm crying. I called my parents and they were like, oh, baby, no, we're not, <laughs> not going to put up with this. You know, they had just been through it. Any black person in the 70s, 80s has been through it. And they were just like not having it. I did not grow up in some crazy place where people didn't fight for their rights. I'm from Detroit. So they, you know, probably faxed or sent a telegram, whatever it was in the 80s, DSA Gymnastics, and told them what happened. Wendy petitioned for a spot on the team based on her training and performances. And it worked. The U.S. Gymnastics Federation overruled the decision and put Wendy back on the team. She correctly calculated that the head coach's bad call was part egotistical corruption, part blatant racism. But it was like kind of a power thing also. Everybody was establishing themselves who's going to be the national team coach, the world championship coach, things like that. So there's all those dynamics in it. But she just she just said no to the wrong girl. (laughs) The following year in 1984, Diane Durham would face similar challenges. It was an Olympic year and the games are going to be held in L.A. For the first time in 50 years, the nation was hoping for glory, eager to crown hometown heroes. Artistic gymnastic coaches battled each other for power on the Olympic stage. They all wanted to be the one to break the medal drought and control the future of American gymnastics. Heading into the games, Diane was dealing with some lingering injuries. She hadn't competed at Worlds that year in order to rest, but she dominated in a meet against China. Well, Diane is somebody you really have to look for winning a medal at the Olympic Games. A 10. Diane Durham, a perfect score and floor exercise, and the Americans have won. Bella Caroli was bursting with confidence in his prodigy. If the Olympics game would be tomorrow, for sure we would have medalists. At the 1984 Olympic trials, Diane hit her beam and floor routines. ABC commentators seem certain that she'd become one of the eight members of the Olympic team. For those of you who joined us late, this is the Diane Durham story as it happened tonight. She was well situated with a strong performance tonight to make the final eight, and then tragedy struck on the vault. Diane landed short on her vault. Her ankles collapsed. She was injured. You can see the tears, not of pain as much as they are of sadness and heartbreak. And that's when things got complicated. Because Diane still had one more event left in order to get the score she needed to make it onto the Olympic team. Alyssa and I devoted countless hours to trying to piece together an accurate blow-by-blow version or narrative of what actually happened. And we got close, but I still think there's areas of dispute or controversy about what happened, who told who what. Someone told Diane she would be better off skipping bars completely and removing herself from the meet rather than competing on an injury. She thought she'd be able to use her high national ranking to petition for a spot on the Olympic team instead. There is a rule concerning this. Uh, She will be able to petition in. 
But either Bella Caroli didn't actually know the rules or he didn't have a chance to think them through with Diane. She was pulled from the meet and her petition, it didn't work. But there was a stipulation that you had to have competed at Worlds and placed in the top six to make the practice squad. She had not competed at Worlds because of injuries. So there, it was very easy for the selection committee to say, we can't petition her onto the team. And that hurt me too, because, you know, she was one of my idols. So yeah, that, that hurt me when I found out that she was injured and couldn't go into the Olympics. It's still unclear who made the decision for Diane to scratch bars. Educated guessers think coaching personalities had a lot to do with it. There was only so many elite American coaches, and they were all vying to be that national team coach and have their gymnasts at the games in L.A. I think there was also a lot of ego between the, the other head coach and Bella and, you know, Bella thought he could sort of do whatever he wanted. I think Diane really, truly got caught in the middle of a lot of big egos and and she became incredibly disposable. In your opinion, is there a sense that that was a decision that was influenced by the selection committee's feelings about Bella or about Diane or a combination of both? You know, as what Diane told me through the years, she felt it was a combination of both. When she felt, you know, maybe America wasn't ready for a black gymnast to be on a weakest box. The 1984 Olympics rolled on without Diane. The dominant gymnastics team from the Soviet Union, they had boycotted the games, putting Mary Lou Retton in a pretty sweet position to win gold in the all-around, which of course she did. She became America's gymnastics darling, plastered on Wheaties boxes. The sport exploded in popularity. Girls flooded into gyms, including future Olympian Betty Okino, inspired by seeing Mary Lou on TV. It's tempting to think about what could have been had trials gone differently. Diane Durham was the last person to beat Mary Lou in an all-around competition. Would Diane have medaled in the Olympics in 84? Most people I talked to said yes, probably many times. Would Gabby Douglas have become the second instead of the first Black woman to win all-around gold? Or would there have been more Black girls entering the sport earlier? But I remember Wendy Hilliard saying it is too painful to ask these what ifs, so just do not ask me to think about them because I'm sure it's incredibly painful for, you know, for someone like Wendy Hilliard who saw the impact Gabby Douglas had on her gym. She had more black young girls coming into her gym than she could fit in the gym. Man, what if that had happened 20, 30 years earlier? 20, 30 years earlier, Diane's career was immediately impactful. Her successes, of course, but even her misses, Right then and there, I said, okay, she's not gonna be on the, on the Olympic team, but I will be the first black girl on the Olympic team. Joyce put in the work and she made it to the Olympic trials in 1988. She breezed through the compulsory round where every gymnast is asked to perform the same routines. But right before the optional competition, the same tragedy that struck Diane struck Joyce. I got injured in the, the workout in between in 1988, there was an incredibly complicated Olympic team selection process. Rules we're not going to get into here because, frankly, they're very boring and very hard to explain. Just know that according to those rules, Joyce's scores weren't high enough from other meets for her to petition onto the team. 
even as an alternate? I didn't want to do gymnastics no more after that. It affected me really bad to the point where it still bothers me today. And I'm 51 years old, haven't been in gymnastics in years. And just talking about it still affects me. You know, I just hope for the best for everybody. Um, I still wanted black girls to come up and, and do their thing. Life is too short to be bitter and live in the world of what might have happened if I was on the 1984 Olympic team. I have come to terms with the way things played out, and I can only hope the same for the individuals that made the decision to not let me be a member of the Olympic team. Diane retired from competitive gymnastics at 16 in 1985. Maybe it's because Diane didn't make it to the Olympics. But for whatever reason, the U.S. Gymnastics Federation, the governing body of American gymnastics at the time, quickly forgot about her. She wasn't officially recognized as the legend or trailblazer she truly was until her death in 2021. That's when she was finally inducted into the USAG Hall of Fame. We saw a lot of people remember, right, and offer flowers now. It always feels like too little, too late. Uh, hell yeah. You know. Hell yeah, and they know it because they, they weren't even thinking about it. I mean, she had been, uh, we had been out of competition since like the, the late 80s. So why not? Why not put her in, you know, the Hall of Fame at that time? So it was like, they would be just haters. They were haters. And until they, you know, stop entertaining misery, they're going to always be haters. She always said that that's the way it would happen, that they would never put her in the Hall of Fame um, when she was alive. I'm seven years older than her. Um, she said, Tom's going to be so old, he'll need a cane to go up and accept my award for me. That's what's tough. But the Hall of Fame, that's what hurt. So I just wish... I didn't have to go accept her award for her, that she could have done it herself. Hi everyone, my name is Kimberly Randall and I'm one of Diane's former gymnasts. In 1996, Diane opened her own gym, Skyline Gymnastics in Chicago. Kim was already a competitive gymnast by the time her mom brought her to Skyline. Dear Diane, my warrior, my mentor, my coach, my friend, I never thought that our, relation, our relationship would grow to what it become, especially considering the fact that you didn't even want to take me on as your gymnast. <laughs> Diane wasn't interested in taking on gymnasts that weren't, as Kim puts it, homegrown. She wasn't looking to build a super elite team or even train Olympic hopefuls. But Kim's mom insisted. She was a decent gymnast who just needed the right training, she said. And Diane, in her own voice, was like, I know who she is. After a lot of begging, Diane gave Kim a shot. Nine, I thought I was everything too, let me tell you. And Diane quickly shut that down. She was like a second mom. Um, people at competitions thought that she was my mom or my aunt, and I didn't deny it. That year, under Diane's guidance, Kim competed as a level seven and won a top award in the state. The next year, she got the top award for level eights in the state. I remember waking up one day and we were going to, I don't remember if it was eight or seven or eight regionals or state or whatever. And I told my mom, I was like, I'm about to win. 
And she was like, Kim, you know, you can't say that. You can't say that. You know, you have to go through. You have no idea what these, what these other gymnasts are going to do. And I was like, no, because Diane said I could. So needless to say, I won. Diane was generous with her belief and support of young Black gymnasts, even if they didn't compete for her. After Bonnie and Alyssa wrote an article about Diane paving the way for Black gymnasts, two different friends in two different parts of the country told Alyssa the same story. Both of them were at gymnastics meets. Diane was at the meet. She was coaching her team. And she saw two separate daughters in separate states at separate meets and she's the only black girl on her team. And she walked over to each of them and took the time to sit and talk to them and ask them about how their experience was and what their lives were like in gymnastics and tell about her life and say, you know, I look like you and I won a national championship. If you ever need anything, here's my phone number. It didn't matter whether Diane almost went to the Olympics decades before they were born. It didn't matter whether she was in the National Gymnastics Hall of Fame. She saw them. She knew what they were going through. She was there for the next generation of prodigies. And, you know, if I personally happen to randomly know two little kids who this happened to, you know, to think about the impact Diane Durham made on the gymnastics world, just the world at large throughout her entire life is pretty remarkable to think about. This is where Diane's impact and legacy is felt, in the lives and the futures of Black girl gymnasts the ones she influenced both by coaching and by being a visible presence in the sport. Her legacy gave them a blueprint or a glimpse of what could be possible. And in the end, that matters more than any belated celebrations from USAG. Because for the people who knew and loved and were impacted and inspired by Diane, they certainly didn't need an institution to tell them that she was an icon. Diane Durham was already a legend, and she knew it. I shattered one glass ceiling for black gymnasts being the first black gymnast to be the all-around champion of the United States. Betty Okino and Dominique Dawes shattered another glass by being the first black athletes to compete as members of the USA Olympic team. Dominique shattered another glass ceiling in 1996 by being the first black gymnast to be a part of a team that won a gold medal. Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles shattered the final glass ceiling by being the first black gymnast to be Olympic all-around champions. Yay! This episode of American Prodigies was reported and hosted by me, Amira Rose Davis. Story editing and production by Jessica Luther, Jessica Bonniford, and Kelly Hardcastle-Jones are our senior producers. Sound design, mix, and mastering by Camille Stennis. If you want to hear more of my interviews with gymnasts, subscribe to Blue Wire's Apple Podcast subscription channel. Along with ad-free episodes, you can listen to my full interview with rhythmic gymnast Wendy Hilliard. Search Blue Wire and Apple Podcasts for access to all the extended interviews. It's free for the first seven days. Subscribe today.
This episode featured archival audio from CBS, the USA Gymnastics Region 5 Hall of Fame, the USA Network, and ABC. Production assistance was provided by Isabel Jocelyn, Kayla Stokes, and Jordan Liggins. Fact-checking was done by Mary Mathis and Jessica Luther. Production coordination by Devin Shepard. And we had research help from Shawetha Sharindran, Mariam Khan, and Mary Mathis. A very special thanks to Tom Drahazel for inviting us to attend Diane's Celebration of Life. American Prodigies is executive produced by Peter Moses and John Yales. I trained doing beam to music. So if there was music on, I always did my routine to whatever song that was on. What kind of music? Uh, I loved all kinds, but you know, I was the only chocolate chick, so you know how to deal with Bon Jovi and all of them too, but... <laughs> I put my R&B and my hip hop on there. They knew they had to hear it. Yeah, you want me to handle my business that my music is going to be on here.